morning, everybody. <clears throat> Are you like me? Is finally singing Christmas music? Does it just fill you up? I, I, I love that. Especially because in my home, my wife is a huge lover of Thanksgiving. It's probably her second favorite holiday. She likes Christmas better, but everything about Thanksgiving she loves. She wants nothing to diminish and get in the way of Thanksgiving. So I'm not allowed to listen to Christmas music until the turkey is cold on Thanksgiving Day, which means for the last 10 days I've been swimming in Christmas music. Right? I've been on my car, at home, in the office. That's all the time. And to sing it here with you guys today has just been a, been a joy. I love everything about Christmas. I love the spiritual side, but to be honest, I like getting presents too. <laughs> Who doesn't like that? And getting the stuff you expect to get is, is cool. But think about that time you got a really unexpected gift. That you opened it and went, I literally had no idea. And when I was a kid, that wasn't likely because we made lists for Santa Claus and we sent them away. And guess what? The stuff we put on the list, most of it we got. So we couldn't say, oh, I had no idea. How did you know? Well, you made a list. <laughs> That's how we knew. But every once in a while, somebody thinks ahead. And without you even asking for it, they get you something cool. Have you had that experience? I had that last Christmas, as a matter of fact. You have to realize this is the first time I've ever lived in a place where it snows. So I'm still that giddy California guy who, whenever it snows, I run outside to catch flakes on my tongue. I'm sorry, I'm 58 years old, but I am not proud. <laughs> I love it when it snows. And I hike every week, like I've mentioned before. And my wife, on a whim last year, got me the best unexpected gift I ever got. She got me snowshoes. Those are my snowshoes on my feet, friends, right there. Do you remember last year they predicted an 8 to 10 inch storm right after Christmas? And we all waited and it kind of didn't do much in town as it was. But south of town, up Senator's Highway, it snowed 8 to 10 inches. And I hiked in snow. <laughs> I can do that now. I love it. It was an amazing, unexpected gift. Now think in your own life, what has been unexpected that you really did say, I had no idea? Well, friends, we're looking at the unexpected side of the Christmas story. Not so much gifts, but what was unexpected in the story of the arrival of Jesus. Each week, for these four weeks, we're looking at a twist, an a surprise built into the story of the birth of Christ. John started last week with the surprise news that Joseph got. Guess what? Your fiancé is going to have a baby. But it's okay. God says, I got this. Obey me. And we saw that Joseph did. Each week now, we're going to look at another element of that unexpected. But let's recognize, first of all, that much of the Christmas story was expected. Because God is a God who reveals his plan. He has secrets, he has mysteries, but he also talks a lot to his people about what he's doing. And so this idea that a Messiah would come, that was expected. In fact, way back at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of the human rebellion... When God, everything caves in and the people say, we're in charge, and God says, okay, here's the consequences. And he goes through Adam and Eve and Satan himself. When God judges Satan, he says this, someone is coming. I have a plan. This rebellion did not catch me by surprise. Someone is coming, Satan, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. He will destroy you and you will harm him picture of Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 3. And all through the rest of the Old Testament, there's these constant promises given by God to his people through prophets saying, it's not always going to be like this. I'm going to fix it. Right now you're condemned to death because you're a sinner. I'm going to fix that, God said. Right now you can't come into my presence for your own sake because I'm holy and you're not, but I'm going to fix that. 
Right now, you have nothing to expect but hell because you deserve it. But one day I'm going to make it so you can go to heaven. I've got this. So the idea that a Messiah would come and make things right, well, that was not unexpected. The idea that this Messiah would be a descendant of King David of Israel, the man after God's own heart, that was not unexpected either. God promised it. God said so to King David. There will be a descendant of yours who will sit on your throne, not for 20 years, not for 40 years, but forever. So we get to the Gospels and we see that both Mary and Joseph are descendants of David. So it doesn't surprise us a bit. That's to be expected. The idea that this Messiah would be born in a certain town named Bethlehem, that was expected too. Because 700 years before Jesus was born, God said to Micah the prophet, write this down, and he gave a prophecy that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in the town of Bethlehem. So when we read in the Gospels that Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth when they got the news, it doesn't surprise us that they moved toward Bethlehem because that was God's plan. It doesn't surprise us that the wise men, when they arrive, and say, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And King Herod says, well, let's do a little research. And he calls his experts. Where should I send these guys? Where is the Messiah going to be born? They say, Bethlehem. So friends, much of the story that we talk about around Christmas was expected in its day. But there are some surprises as well. Some bits and pieces that are unexpected. And we're going to look today at one piece. I'm not going to tell you yet what it is. I'm going to walk you through a very well-known passage from the book of Luke. In fact, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, if you would. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand up on the air. Someone will be glad to offer you one, and you're free to keep it as a gift from us, as a matter of fact. Good to have you all here with us. Luke chapter 2 is probably the most well-known passage about the Christmas story in all of the Gospels. And it's a challenge to preach about and a challenge to listen to a sermon about because the listeners tend to get ahead of the preacher. So, so stay with me. All right? There's going to be maybe a couple twists, maybe a couple surprises here, apart from what you might normally expect. We're not going to read every verse of Luke chapter 2, just a few highlights. See if you can, as you listen, find the surprise. What's unexpected in this story of the birth of Christ? We'll begin in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. At this point, Mary and Joseph have made the trip. The governor had called for the census. They head to Bethlehem. That's where they were from. And then we get to this in verse 4. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Familiar passage. You might not see the surprise yet, but trust me, it's there. Let's go ahead a little bit now. The famous passage with the angels talking to the shepherds. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. There's a little hint there. You might have picked up if you're really perceptive. All right, but let's, let's see the next verse. Don't read ahead. No fair reading ahead. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the what? Guess what the surprise was? Exactly. I say surprise because there's nothing in the promises leading up to this day that would prepare people for this part of the story. And you might even say, well, that's because it's not that big a deal, but it kind of is. 
Because the word manger appears three times in eight verses. God doesn't repeat himself by accident, friends. Something matters about the manger, and it's unexpected. It's a surprise. Now, we have to clarify what we're talking about when we talk about manger, because in our day there's a little bit of confusion. We talk about a manger scene, and we picture the entire scene, including the shelter over the entire group that's there at Jesus' birthday. And we tend to kind of lump it all together. In fact, we say Jesus was born in a manger, and that leads to the assumption that the shelter is the manger. But that's not true. In fact, we're not even sure he was born in a hut like that. Many think he was born in a cave because that's where shepherds often kept animals in the day. Some think he was born on the ground floor of a home where even in our day, in in poorer areas, animals are kept indoors in the winter to both protect them and also provide heat. Smelly heat, I imagine, but heat nonetheless for the rest of the house. So we're, but, but it's not the shelter that's in play here. The manger is actually the feeding trough. The manger is the place where food was put and the place where animals were fed. And when they were hungry, they came there to eat. And it was not an expected part of the arrival of the Messiah. Trust me, I looked. In the entire Old Testament, the word manger appears just three times. Never in association with the coming of the Messiah. So that's why I say this whole manger thing is unexpected. And there must be a purpose in it. There must be a reason. It's a surprise, but it says something important. In fact, it says this. The manger points to both the sacrifice and the purpose of the birth of Jesus. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at those two ideas. The sacrifice and the purpose. Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts to what you have for us today? We know your word is true. We know you don't say things by accident. Would you speak? Because your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, we're going to begin with this idea that the manger underlined the sacrifice of the birth of Christ. And to help you get that, I want you to come with me to a season of my life when my family lived in Cameroon, West Africa. We were serving there as missionaries. We were not your typical African missionaries. When you picture that, you probably think of a guy in a hut in a jungle using a machete to get to work in the morning. That was not our experience. We lived in a big city, the capital city. We lived in an apartment. We had a car. It was the the capital of, of Cameroon, a city named Yaoundé. And because we were in this city, about one million people, we had access to all kinds of folks, really from all around the world, including a significant access to the American diplomatic community. I was, I think, the only American pastor in town. And as we became known uh, among the diplomats at the embassy, we had opportunities that I didn't expect to have. In fact, I was invited once to say grace at the Thanksgiving dinner put on by the U.S. ambassador to Cameroon in her mansion. Not a bad gig (laughs) for a missionary, right? So I come in there and I say my prayer and I sit down at my table next to the Nigerian ambassador and business leaders and all the upper crust of Cameroonian society. It was a good experience. And when we were done, I turned to my wife and said, we should return the favor. The ambassador invited us to her house. Why shouldn't we invite her to ours? Now, we lived in a little apartment, kind of grungy in the outskirts of town. But we thought it's only hospitable, right? So we contacted the embassy and I invited the U.S. ambassador to Cameroon to come have tacos with us. And she accepted So we're waiting that night to welcome the ambassador, and she's a little late because she had diplomatic stuff to do. She arrives and knocks on our door, and we welcome her in, and our little toddler daughter welcomes her by vomiting on her shoes. (laughs) 
Oh, boy. Not our finest moment. She was a single lady, never had any kids, connected politically, friend of the Kennedys, and my daughter threw up on her shoes. We tried to tell her it was a Cameroonian tradition how to welcome people, but she didn't buy it. So cleaned off her shoes a little bit. We sat and had dinner. We had a wonderful time. She was very gracious. And then before she left, I thought, I really should walk her around to our Cameroonian friends and colleagues because that's the polite thing to do. And I also wanted them to know that I'm hanging out with the U.S. ambassador, which is pretty cool, right? So I walk her around and take her to the Cameroonian pastor's house, and he's amazed that she's there. We walk her out to her car, and he says, what's that on her shoes? I said, don't worry about it. (laughs) It's no big deal. She gets in the car, and then her driver drives her off. And I'll never forget what my friend said. He said, that was amazing. And I said, yeah, it was kind of her to come, wasn't it? He said, no, no, you don't understand. If she were Cameroonian, there'd be lights and sirens and police and an entourage of 20 people and the whole neighborhood would know she was here. And here this lady, a U.S. ambassador, comes to our home quietly, humbly, and drives off just as quietly. He thought it was amazing. And I was kind of pleased at that reaction. Kind of glad that my ambassador had given that impression. But if her quiet and humble arrival was impressive, imagine the one we're talking about today. We're not talking about just an ambassador coming. We're talking about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords coming to earth in human form quietly. And and coming to earth not with a, a big fanfare and an announcement to kings and rulers and princes who come now to welcome him. Not only shepherds get invited. We'll talk about them in two weeks. And, and not, we don't know exactly what it was he left behind to make this trip into our world. Because the Bible isn't too detailed, is it, about what goes on in heaven. It's a little bit. We, God opens windows and we get to stand on tiptoes and look over the threshold and glance into heaven. And it looks pretty amazing. Just the little glimpses we get. Who would leave that? Who would walk away from that to come onto this rock full of dirt and muck and pain to step into a rebellion that had been going on for centuries as the object of that rebellion? Who would do that? Look at the sacrifice Jesus made just to make the trip. But not only did He choose to become human compared to heaven. Wow, what a loss already. But look at the family He chose. A family that welcomed the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and couldn't afford a bed for him. Had to put him in his first bed into a stinking feeding trough. They would later go on to give a sacrifice in the temple. And they gave the poor families sacrifice. He chose a family that would raise him in the town of Nazareth. A hick backwater of Israel. Mocked and made fun of by the rest of the country. Can anything good Come out of Nazareth. That's the home he chose. That's the family he chose. And then, as if that weren't enough, the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice he made is that the lungs that began breathing in the manger in Bethlehem stopped breathing 33 years later on a cross in Jerusalem. Friends, that's what he gave up. That's the price he paid to come be with us. What an unexpected sacrifice. And the manger points it out. But there was a purpose in it. The Apostle Paul reveals that purpose later on in the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 9. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, 
Yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Is that an amazing verse? It recognizes what the manger means. It recognizes that He became poor. He sacrificed all that He had. Philippians 2 said He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. That emptying was done for your sake. So friends, it wasn't just a gesture. It wasn't just an admirable move on His part. For your sake He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. He left heaven behind so we could go there. Is that amazing? He was born in poverty so we could be spiritually wealthy. His first crib was a stinking feeding trough so we could get to know the God of the universe. He lived in the dirt and muck and the boondocks of Israel so that you and I could become rich in heaven's eyes for your sake. So friends, let me ask you a very personal question. Has his poverty made you rich? Has what he gave up become yours? Now, if you're here today and you haven't yet taken that step to follow Jesus and you're just kind of intrigued and you're curious and you hear a lot and some of it's sinking in, some of it's not, you're not really sure where you stand, that's, that's fine. We're glad you're here. And what a great season of the year to join us and to be thinking through all these things. So it's okay if you haven't yet taken that step, but you'll have a chance before we're done today to do that. And I hope some will be ready today to take that step. But maybe you already have. Maybe sometime in your life you've done what I'm going to invite folks to do later. You've sat and realized, wow, I want to be rich with all the gifts that God wants to give me. I know I need to follow Jesus to do that. Maybe you've taken that step, but you know it's possible to be spiritually rich and still live as if you're poor. Happens all the time, sadly. And it makes sense. If I had a rich friend, and I convinced him there was nothing in his bank account, I could get him to walk around and beg on the streets. Because if he doesn't realize how wealthy he is, he's going to live as if he is in poverty. And sometimes that's what we do as Christians. We don't realize just how wealthy Christ has made us. And we live as if we were poor. Do you know, Christian that your sins are forgiven. Don't answer too quickly. Do you know, know, that every one of them is gone in God's eyes? If you don't know that, then you're going to beat yourself up and you're going to say, oh, God must hate me. I can't bear, I can't think about going to Him. I can't pray because I'm such a loser. Well, those are the ideas the enemy wants you to embrace because then you'll live as if you're poor. Do you know, Christian, that you have access to God at any time? You don't have to come here. You don't have to go anywhere. Wherever you are, you can stop and you are welcome in the presence of the King of Kings. Because if you don't know that, then you'll think, I've got to get someone else to pray for me because I, I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. I can't do it myself. Well, no, you can. Do you know, Christian, that you have eternal life? Not that you will have eternal life. The Bible says you have it already. It's already started. Are you looking forward to it? Or are you wondering whether you're going to get it or not? Friends, it's possible, sadly, to be spiritually rich with all that Jesus Christ came to give you and to live as if you had none of it. There's nothing more tragic than that. And maybe this idea of the manger would help you remember that. 
Maybe this idea that Jesus became poor so you, through his poverty, might become rich, maybe today we'll embrace it. Say, well, I don't earn it. I I don't deserve it. I'm not sure why God gives it, but I'm going to live fully in it. What better way to celebrate his birth than to live fully with all that he gives? Friends, the manger underlines the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to make for your sake. But there's another side to the manger as well. It not only reveals the sacrifice of Jesus, it reveals the purpose of the birth of Jesus. You see, that manger is simply a place where food is put. And when animals are hungry, and if they don't eat, they'll die, they can go to that manger, and that's where they receive the nutrition and the nourishment that they need in order to live. And that was especially an appropriate resting place for this child. To understand why, we need to zip ahead 30 years and go ahead a few books. Turn to John chapter 6 in your Bibles, if you would. We're going to look now at a time in the life of Christ, now an adult, as he's walking around doing the will of God, teaching the teachings of God. And as is often the case, he gets challenged. He had enemies. He had people who wanted him to prove himself, and he was constantly being asked to do so. And in this one chapter, in John chapter 6, you'll see he's being challenged to perform. Let me show you what I mean by that. In John 6, verse 30, some of these people who were trying to hold his feet to the fire, asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Wow, what a bold question. What are they saying? Prove yourself, Jesus. Do, some, do what we want so we, we will maybe believe you if you do what we're asking you to do. What will you do to prove who you are? a pretty bold statement. But then they go on further and they suggest a possibility. They, go, they re- refer to the manna. They say, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, in case you're not familiar with that story, it refers back to a, an Old Testament time when the people of Israel were wandering 40 years in the desert and there was nothing to eat for them out in the middle of nowhere. So every night God saw to it supernaturally that manna, a form of bread, would fall from the sky onto the ground around the camp of the people of Israel. And they went out every morning for 40 years and collected food to eat. It was the way God kept them alive. Without the manna, they would die. And so these people refer to the manna, but not just because it was an interesting story in the Old Testament. If you look back in earlier in chapter 6 of, of the book of John, the day before this interview, Jesus had taken a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread and made it feed 5,000 people. And that was a pretty amazing day. And I believe that these guys are saying, hey, what you did yesterday was pretty cool. Would you do it again? Some of us were here and saw it. Some of us heard about it. We've come to see. Perform for us, Jesus. Jump through our hoop. Give us bread. We are hungry. Give us what we want. Show your stuff. Prove yourself. Yeah, he's being challenged here. And he starts to respond. At first, they probably think, hey, cool. But there's a twist. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so far, they're thinking, well, this is interesting. And they say, well, sir, from now on, give us this bread. Sounds good to us. But now he surprises them. Jesus said, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still do not believe. What's happening here? Jesus is saying, here's what I've come for. I didn't come here to do tricks. I didn't come here simply to, to, to do a miracle to, to, to satisfy your curiosity. I didn't come here to fill your belly for a day. I came here because just like manna fell from heaven to give life to the Israelites, I've come down from heaven to give life to my people. God is still in the business, Jesus says, of giving life through bread. And he says, I am the bread. If you want the kind of life, the real life, the true life, the forever life, if you want the abundant life, if you want the everlasting life, if you want the eternal life, I give that. You get it from me. And just in the same way, when you eat bread, you live till the next meal. When you take me into you, you have the life God wants to give you. Now, you might ask, well, okay, I, I get the picture. I, I think I understand the metaphor. But I know how to eat physical bread. You take off a piece and put it in your mouth and munch on it. How do I take in Jesus as the bread of life? Well, he tells us. As I told you, you've seen me and still you do not believe. Friends, the person who has come to Jesus as the bread of life and has received the life that he makes possible has said, I believe in you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. Or I mentioned earlier, somebody might not yet have taken this step. Well, here's what that step looks and sounds like. Sooner or later, every person, mine happened when I was 11 years old, every person needs to realize, I'm dead. <laughs> Without some change, without something happening from God, I am doomed. And this isn't the life I want, and I, 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 no way I qualify for eternal life. Good grief. Me? And you realize, well, it's, it's a gift that God gives. And you receive it by trusting Jesus and by praying a prayer something like this. Saying, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. you I know what a terrible person I am. I know how far I fall short, and I'm nowhere near the person I should be. And yet you say you're ready to forgive all that. I trust you. You say you're ready to wipe my slate clean. I trust you. You say you're ready to give eternal life to someone who deserves your judgment. That blows my mind, but I trust you. And starting now, I follow you. I turn from my pride and my rebellion and I turn to you and I say, would you please take me? Would you please come into my life the way bread comes into my stomach? Would you please transform me to be the person you want me to be? Friends, a simple prayer like that is the way you can take the step necessary in order for the bread of life to become real in your life. So my question is this. Have you fed yourself at the manger? Have you come to that feeding trough and said, that's my bread. Jesus is the source of my life. Friends, looking at him and admiring him is not enough. We just had Thanksgiving, right? Anybody just stare at the meal all through Thanksgiving? Did you just sit in your, in your seat? Oh, that turkey is very attractive. Look at the red tones in that cranberry sauce. That's lovely. No, who would sit through a meal and just look at it and admire it? No, you, you eat it. You take it. And it's not enough to look at Jesus and admire him. It's not enough to say, wow, what a wonderful teacher. What a great example. No, that's not what he came to be. He came to be the bread of life. 
He came to feed you and fill you and give you the life God wants you to have. That's the purpose. And the manger underlines that. Because a manger is where you put food. That's what Jesus came to be. So friends, I invite you to come back with me now. We've been with Jesus now as an adult. We're going to time travel again. Come back with me to Bethlehem. We're standing in that cave or the ground floor of a house. There's all kinds of debates on where that birth actually happened. That's beside the point, actually. But we're there and we're watching this newborn baby is there. And we feel kind of bad because this isn't exactly the kind of place you'd want to give birth. And yet that's where it happened. And you see his mother, Mary, take this baby and wrap him in cloths. And you see her lay him to your surprise and slight disappointment. Not in a nice warm bed. Not in the kind of setting a baby would normally enjoy. You see her put him in a feeding trough. And your first instinct is to go, wow, that's sad. But because we've done what we've done today, because we've looked ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you stand amazed that the King of kings and Lord of lords would accept a bed like this. That he would be born in a family like this, in a stinky, smelly stable like this. And you'd stand amazed that the richest being in the universe would lay all that aside to come down and do what God wanted him to do out of love for you. So you look at the manger and say, you know, it's not noble. He deserved better. But he accepted that. He chose poverty to make me rich. And you smile and you say, boy, I'm glad to have a God like that. And then it crosses your mind because you came with me to John chapter 6 and you heard what this baby would one day say as an adult. You realize that in the truth, it's not just a baby in that manger. It's bread. It's a source of life. It's what gives you strength. It's what you need. That this baby was laid in a manger because he would one day say, I am the bread of life. I'm what you need. Without me, you will die in the same way Israel would have died without the manna. But because I came down from heaven, you can live. Not just live the way you want to live. Live the way God wants you to live. Live the kind of life God wants to give you. I am the source of it, Jesus says. Come to me. Take me in. Let me be your bread of life. That's why he came, and that's what the manger means. And friends, if you, by any chance, spoke Hebrew, there would be another layer of your understanding of all of this. Because you would realize that we are traveling and we have come to the town of Bethlehem, a city that in Hebrew means house of bread. Small gasp. You know what God had to do in order to make that come true? Think about what God had to have happen. He had to make sure that centuries earlier, when this city was founded, someone would call it Bethlehem, house of bread. He had to make sure that's where King David would be born. He had to make sure that David's relatives, thousand years later, would come there for a census and come to Bethlehem. He had to make sure that his Messiah was born of a virgin in that town so that he could one day say, I am the bread of life. I'm not just a leader 
I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a good example. I'm the only one who can give you the life God wants you to have. Friends, God went out of his way to make sure that we had what we needed. He went out of his way to make sure through the manger that we understood how much he was willing to sacrifice for us to become rich. And we understood that he alone is the one who gives the life that God makes available. And it is even more appropriate then that before he left us, he left behind a meal that we could enjoy and we are now for 2,000 years. And that meal includes, guess what? Bread. We're going to take communion right now. And communion is a meal Jesus left for his followers to take to remember what he's done. I want to invite those who are going to distribute it to come down now and begin the distribution. Friends, when the elements come by you, if you are a Christ follower, would you please participate with us? If you're not, you'd do well to let them go by. There's no pressure on you whatsoever to participate. But if you know you're a follower of God, follower of Christ, and a child of God, take those two cups, one inside the other, hold them in your hand, and reflect for a few minutes on what it means. Reflect on the things you've heard today. And as the guys are playing, reflect on the fact that the one who came as the bread of life continues to give that life today. Let's make these, this time a time of meditation and worship as the guys play. find the Christmas season to be a wonderful time to take communion because it drives home some wonderful realities and lets us see them in a little different light. I want us to know a couple of things before we do this. I want us to understand that the elements we're taking today have been taken by Christ followers for 2,000 years now. And we are connecting ourselves to them as we enjoy the meal that Jesus Christ gave to all of us that has been celebrated since he left us and will be celebrated until he comes back. So we're connecting to all those fellow believers throughout history and we're also connecting to fellow believers around the world because Jesus didn't just come for us. He came and died for the sins of the world and his name is known today in all corners of that world. I've had a chance to visit many of them and to take communion in some fairly odd places. And what we're doing today connects ourselves to people on all continents of the earth who today, maybe even right now, are enjoying the same meal, same meal that we are. And I want to read to you a passage that Paul wrote a few years after Christ's departure. He wrote it to a church in the city of Corinth and gave them instructions on how to enjoy this meal that we're enjoying today. He said this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, the bread of life, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. 
in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that together. Lord, thank you for the manger. Thank you for all that it means. Thank you for teaching us what it means today. Thank you most of all for your humility, for your sacrifice, and for the life that you and you alone provide. Lord, would you teach teach us how to live that life? Teach us how to worship you for your sacrifice, to love you for your gift. Teach us how to eat daily of the bread of life so that we can fully live the life that you, our Savior, want us to have. We pray this in Christ's name, grateful for your birth. Amen.